All right, Jeremiah 51, in your Bibles, please. Jeremiah 51, we're looking at verses 30 to 64 this evening. Very much a continuation, of course, of last week as we're walking through uh, the same context, but not just a continuation of last week. As I mentioned, it's very much so, in spirit, a continuation of this morning. Now, obviously, the context of Jeremiah 51 and the context of 1 Timothy 4 are quite different, right? We're not talking about the same context, but we are talking about a very similar concept and that which we have seen throughout this teaching on Babylon. Now we've walked slowly through Babylon in Jeremiah 50 and 51 because of the prophetic implications of what we're looking at. Because of the necessity of seeing Babylon not just as that city that was going to fall in 539 BC, that city that brought the nation of Judah into 70 years of captivity, that nation uh, that God used to judge the people and then subsequently was judged himself. But we have recognized that Babylon is something more. And that we see Babylon as something more, that we see the prophetic roots of Babylon, that we see uh, similarities between the way Babylon is described in Jeremiah 15 and 51 and what we find in Revelation 17 and 18 as it relates to that mystery Babylon, that mother uh, of harlots, that great whore that rides the beast. As we have seen those things, it has called us not only to prophetic realizations, of Babylon, which we'll focus more in next week. But it has also called us to take the message that is given to the people of God in, this, in these passages of Scripture, and it's given us contextual license to well expand the message beyond just Judah and expand it to the entire principle of all those who interact with the spirit of Babylon. And the spirit of Babylon, we trace all the way back to Babel. And we trace all the way forward to mystery Babylon. And we see it throughout all of those ages. And so that gives us license to understand our place as it relates to some of these elements of Babylon. And we continue now uh, in Jeremiah 51, verse 30. And the exposition, we're going to read some larger chunks. We're going to explain it in larger chunks. As far as the actual exposition of the scripture goes, uh, we're going to be seeing a lot of repeats. We're going, to, we're going to find some places where we correlate with Revelation 17 and 18. We're going to see some of those things, but we're going to cover this in larger chunks because the message itself is almost done. I was tempted to try to get it all done last week in one message, but there's just too much, really, there's too much application. Um, to, to do that. So we're in verse 30, and beginning in verse 30, reading to verse 40, the Bible says this, The mighty men of Babylon have forborne to fight. They have remained in their holds. Their might hath failed. They became as women. They have burned her dwelling places. Her bars are broken. One post shall run to meet another, and one messenger to meet another, to show the king of Babylon that his city is taken at one end, and that the passages are stopped, and the reeds they have burned with fire, and the men of war are affrighted. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, the daughter of Babylon is like a threshing floor. It is time to thresh her. Yet a little while in the time of her harvest shall come. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, hath devoured me. He hath crushed me. He hath made me an empty vessel. He hath swallowed me up like a dragon. He hath filled his belly with my delicates. He hath cast me out. The violence done unto me and to my flesh be upon Babylon, shall the inhabitant of Zion say, and my blood upon the inhabitants of Chaldea shall Jerusalem say. Therefore, thus saith the Lord, behold, I will plead thy cause and take vengeance for thee, and I will dry up her sea and make her springs dry. And Babylon shall become heaps, a dwelling place for dragons, an astonishment and an hissing without an inhabitant. They shall roar together like lions. They shall yell as lions whelps. In their heat, I will make their feasts. And I will make them drunken that they may rejoice and sleep a perpetual sleep and not wake saith the Lord. I will bring them down like lambs to the slaughter, like rams with he goats. God speaks of Babylon falling at the beginning in verses 30 and 31 without a fight. That they will, he says there in verse 30, that the mighty men of Babylon have forborne to fight. They have remained in their holds. 
This is something we know took place at the overthrow of Babylon in 539 BC, at least to a degree. Uh, We recognize from scripture that it was overthrown without a fight, that it was overthrown in the middle of the night, and that really it was almost as if the entire government was toppled without any particular battle of note in, 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 in one night. We also see a good description of their overthrow in these verses. These verses speak of messengers running to and fro throughout the land, one messenger meeting another messenger, passing these messages along that the nation has been invaded, getting to the king of Babylon and telling the king of Babylon that the nation has been overthrown. Happened so suddenly, it happened so quickly that they did not even really know what happened. Once again, this is reminiscent of some of the elements that we see in Babylon in Revelation 17 and 18. The idea that though the kings of the earth, those kings would destroy Babylon, yet the, the, the merchants would be dumbfounded. They would be astonished at the sudden fall of Babylon as if it was simply not expected. We find the, the, this passage speaks of the passages that would be waterways being stopped and speaking of the reeds being burned with fire. The waterways being stopped, the reeds burned with fire, uh, that's a reference to the reality that Babylon was built on the Euphrates River. And so there would be a great amount of river commerce throughout the city. God then likens Babylon to a threshing floor whose time of harvest was come. It was time for harvest. Babylon is the threshing floor and he would thresh out the wheat and the chaff on that threshing floor of Babylon effectively saying that his full judgment would fall upon them. And God speaks of a direct offense of the king Nebuchadnezzar. A fascinating look here into the mind of God as the people, the inhabitants of Zion, cry out. And these inhabitants cry out and say, Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon has crushed me. He has devoured me. He has made me an empty vessel. He swallowed me like a dragon. He's filled my belly with delicates. He's cast me out. This is the inhabitants of Zion saying these things. And God takes personal offense to the treatment of his people in such a cause. So God says, I will plead thy cause. I will take vengeance for thee. I will dry up her sea. I will make the springs dry. God was willing to use Nebuchadnezzar unto his purposes, but that did not leave Nebuchadnezzar without his own consequences. And we've seen this all throughout. So God says he would bring them down like a lamb to the slaughter. Notice all of these pictures of judgment, the threshing floor, the place where the wheat and the chaff would be separated. And he says, I will, I will use Babylon as my threshing floor. Then he gives this picture of like lambs to the slaughter that they will be a dwelling place for dragons, that it will not be fit for men, that they will be a hissing, that idea of of a, a curse or a scorn upon the land. Now take note of another similarity here that we find between Jeremiah 51 and Revelation. In Jeremiah 51 verse 30, we read this, the men, the mighty men, of Babylon have forborne the fight. They have remained in their holds. Their might hath failed. They became as women. They have burned her dwelling places. Her bars are broken. And we see a very similar idea in Revelation 17 and 18 about the final fate of mystery Babylon. And that uh, the 10 horns shall eat her flesh, that would be those 10 kings, and burn her with fire. She shall be utterly burned with fire. Chapter 18, verse 8. For the Lord, for strong is the Lord God who judgeth her. So we find this promise that they would be burned with fire, reminiscent of what we find in Babylon. And do take note, Babylon was, the city was not overthrown in 539 BC. What we're reading as a description here is not what it looked like during that overthrow as history and the word of God informs us. We continue then in verses 41 through 44. The Bible says this, how is Sheshach taken? How is the praise of the whole earth surprised? How is Babylon become an astonishment among the nations? The sea is come up upon Babylon. She is covered with the multitude of the waves thereof. Her cities are a desolation, a dry land, and a wilderness, and a land wherein no man dwelleth, neither doth any son of man pass thereby. And I will punish Bel 
in Babylon and will bring forth out of his mouth that which he hath swallowed up. And the nation shall not flow together any more unto him. Yea, the wall of Babylon shall fall. We find here a unique name given for Babylon here, the name Sheshach. It's a symbolic name for Babylon. It's used only two times in the scriptures. It's used here in Jeremiah chapter 51, and it's used in Jeremiah 25, verse 26. The name Sheshach literally means fine linen or thy fine linen. And it is likely a a hearkening to the lavishness of Babylon, to the wealth of Babylon, to um, the the, uh, um, strength of Babylon. We also might liken it as we look at Babylon in Revelation 17 and 18 to the reality that, that it is in that time the seat of commerce. It is where, uh, unto which the whole world flows as merchants flowing to that land of Babylon, which is why the merchants are so uh, devastated when Babylon very quickly falls as an astonishment among the nations. So Babylon will be overthrown And once again, we find the call of God for his people to separate from her. Verses 45 through 49. He says, My people, go ye out of the midst of her and deliver ye every man his soul from the fierce anger of the Lord. And lest your heart faint and ye fear for the rumor that that shall be heard in the land, a rumor shall both come one year and after that in another year shall come a rumor and violence in the land, ruler against ruler, Therefore, behold, the days come that I will do judgment upon the graven images of Babylon and her whole land shall be confounded and all her slain shall fall in the midst of her. Then the heaven and the earth and all that is therein shall sing for Babylon for the spoiler shall come unto her from the north, saith the Lord. As Babylon hath caused the slain of Israel to fall, so at Babylon shall fall the slain of all the earth. It is here once again that we seem to go beyond just the immediate considerations of Babylon's fall in 539 B.C. That God's people are once again called to separate themselves from the midst of Babylon. And this gives us insight into the gravity of the judgment that will fall upon Babylon in the time that Jeremiah, of which Jeremiah speaks. Like bringing Lot out of Sodom and Gomorrah. God calls for the righteous to remove themselves from the path of that judgment before they are swept away in something that does not pertain unto them. So he says, Bel, that would be the the God uh, equated very similarly to Baal in Canaan. Bel would be destroyed, would be punished. The God, their their false God would be punished and the, the walls of Babylon would fall naturally as it relates to the walls of physical Babylon at that time, they were one of the tremendous wonders of the world. So thick as the historians tell it that they could literally do chariot races on the top of that wall. A massive, massive wall. And it would crumble at God's say-so. All heaven and earth, the scriptures say thus, in verse 48, would sing for Babylon because the spoilers would come to her from the north. Reminiscent of the words in Revelation 18, verse 20. Rejoice over her, thou heaven, and ye holy apostles and prophets, for God hath avenged you on her. We also saw in this bit an exhortation in verse 45, echoing that exhortation in verse 6. My people, go ye out of the midst of her. And this call too, has precedent in Revelation. Revelation 18, verse 4. As we just saw, um, excuse me, not Revelation 18, verse 4. Uh, still says Revelation 18, verse 4, but I don't think that's right. Um, did I put... Oh yeah, it is Revelation 18, 4. I'm sorry. In Revelation 18, verse 4, and I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins, and that ye receive not of her plagues. Come out of her, my people. The call in the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ, which is not by any means a simple revelation of the things that are going to come to pass, but it is a revelation of the character of Christ and our relationship to him. And in that we see the fall of this world system, 
We see the fall of this economic system. We see the fall of this false religious system. We see the fall of everything that the current of the world has led the world to. And it crumbles. And God says, for this reason, my people stay out from her. Come out from her. Be separate from her. Why? Because God's people, my people, you can still be a part of her plagues. You don't want to receive of her plagues. So come out from her and be separate. Now the message proper is completed in verses 50 to 58. We read this. Ye, have, yeah, ye that have escaped the sword, go away. Stand not still. Remember the Lord afar off and let Jerusalem come into your mind. We are confounded because we have heard reproach. Shame hath covered our faces for strangers are come into the sanctuaries of the Lord's house. Wherefore, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will do judgment upon her graven images. And through all the land the wounded shall groan, though Babylon should mount up to heaven, and though she should fortify the heights of her strength, yet from me shall spoilers come unto her, saith the Lord. A sound of a cry cometh from Babylon, a great destruction from the land of the Chaldeans, because the Lord hath spoiled Babylon and destroyed out of her the great voice. When her waves do roar like great waters, a noise of their voice is uttered, because the spoilers come upon her, even upon Babylon, and her mighty men are taken. Every one of their bows is broken, for the Lord God of recompenses shall surely requite. And I will make drunk her princes and her wise men, her captains and her rulers and her mighty men, and they shall sleep a perpetual sleep and not wake, saith the king, whose name is the Lord of hosts. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the broad walls of Babylon shall be utterly broken and her high gates shall be burned with fire and the people shall labor in vain and the folk in the fire and they shall be weary. Much of the same is mentioned here, but it is interesting that we find in verse 53, this statement, though Babylon should mount up to heaven and though she should fortify the heights of her strength, yet from me shall spoilers come unto her, saith the Lord. There was a Babylon that was sought to be built into the heavens. It was called Babel at the time. And they said, let us make brick and let us build a tower even unto the heavens. And let us make for ourselves a name. And let us not be separated in the earth. God says, though Babylon should mount up to heaven, though she should fortify her heights with all of the strength she can muster, even if the whole world was behind this city, even if the whole world was behind this philosophy, even if the whole world put all of their collective strength into this ideological endeavor to resist, to, to confront, to rebel against God. God says, from me shall the spoilers come unto her and her great walls will fall. Notice once again here, we find what we saw when God spoke to Edom, when God spoke to Moab. In verse 47, he says, and I will make her drunk, uh, I will make drunk her princes and her wise men, her captains and her rulers and her mighty men, and they shall sleep a perpetual sleep and not wake, saith the king, whose name is the Lord of hosts. As he did with Edom, as he did with Moab, as he did with Egypt, God takes a moment here to remind them all who the king is. And it's not Nebuchadnezzar, and it's not Pharaoh. It's the Lord of hosts who has authority. So it will end the great city of Babylon being utterly broken, being burned with fire and becoming a desolation. Now the final verses of Jeremiah 51 are interesting and important. They're for context. And what we find as we read them is that this prophecy is not written after Jerusalem is taken, after Judah is brought into captivity perhaps a little bit earlier than we may have anticipated. Verses 59 through 64, the Bible says this, the words which Jeremiah the prophet commanded Sariah, the son of Neriah, the son of Maasiah, when he went with Zedekiah, the king of Judah, into Babylon in the fourth year of his reign. And this Sariah was a quiet prince, 
So Jeremiah wrote in a book all the evil that should come upon Babylon, even all these words that are written against Babylon. And Jeremiah said unto Sariah, When thou comest to Babylon, and shalt see, and shalt read all these words, then shalt thou say, O Lord, thou hast spoken against this place, to cut it off that none shall remain in it, neither man nor beast, but that it shall be desolate forever. And it shall be, when thou hast made an end of reading this book, that thou shalt bind a stone to it and cast it into the midst of Euphrates. And thou shalt say, Thus shall Babylon sink and shall not rise from the evil that I will bring upon her, and they shall be weary. Thus far are the words of Jeremiah. So we find here that the words written were commanded unto Sariah, the son of Neriah, the son of Maasiah, who was what the scriptures describe as a quiet prince. There's a couple of different possibilities about what that might mean. Perhaps his silence in the face of Zedekiah, who was an evil king. We find that he was a companion to Zedekiah throughout much of Jeremiah. And yet at the same time, we also find Sariah to be a man, perhaps, of unique godly qualities. This was written, Jeremiah says, in the fourth year of King Zedekiah, when Sariah went with Zedekiah into Babylon. This would be a full six or seven years before the fall of Judah. So it would appear that in the fourth year of Zedekiah, of his reign, Sariah and Zedekiah led a caravan unto Babylon, an envoy of sorts, likely to represent the region and perhaps to seek some sort of peaceful resolution to the conflict. And so as they were about to make that journey, Jeremiah pens these words and he gives them to Sariah. And he tells them to do something very interesting with these words. Now, before we talk about that, why give it to Sariah and not to Zedekiah? Well, we know that Zedekiah did not have a great regard for Jeremiah, but Sariah, if that name sounds familiar, if the lineage particularly sounds familiar, that he was the son of Neriah and the son who was the son of Maasiah. This is the same lineage of Jeremiah's companion, Baruch, the one who would cry out his words in the temple, the one who would read them before the king and have the king cutting them up as he was reading them, the one who would follow Jeremiah after the captivity and who would end up in Egypt with him, a godly man, a man who regarded Jeremiah's authority. And so perhaps we might understand Sariah to also regard Jeremiah's authority, coming from a godly lineage and recognizing this quiet prince to be operating in the court of the king, but doing so with a love for the Lord. So he gives it to Sariah. Second, it's also very likely that Jeremiah sent uh, more than just this. We know that Daniel... Right before his, his, the revelation in Daniel chapter 9 of the things that would come upon Daniel's people in the time of the end, we know that Daniel was reading the prophecies of Jeremiah. And so we know that Jeremiah rece- or Daniel received these prophecies. And perhaps it was that Jeremiah was sending a number of prophecies with Sariah to deliver to Daniel, to deliver perhaps to Ezekiel, although we see no direct link between Ezekiel and Jeremiah's prophecies. Sariah would probably be the right man for that job. Third is this commission. Jeremiah did not just want Sariah to take these words with him, did not just want him to read these words. He wanted Sariah to do very much the same thing that Baruch did in the temple. He was going to take those words And he was going to read those words aloud. And after he read those words aloud, he was going to bind those words to a stone. And he was going to take those words of Jeremiah that Jeremiah had written, that he had bound to a stone, and he was going to throw them into the river Euphrates as a symbol of Babylon sinking into that great river never to rise again. And this is not only a very final declaration 
That when Sarah sees for himself Babylon, when he is there in that land, he makes this overt declaration in that land, and then he throws that into the river Euphrates. But once again, it forms what we might see as a, a, another link to the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ in Mystery Babylon. And so we read in Revelation 18, verse 21, A mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and cast it into the sea, saying, Thus with violence shall that great city Babylon be thrown down and shall be found no more at all. So Sariah on that day reads the doom of Babylon. He ties it to a rock and he throws it into the Euphrates. And, in, and at the great fall of Mystery Babylon in Revelation 18, we see an angel take a millstone, cast it into the sea, and say, so falls Babylon. And with that, it's very difficult. It's very difficult to chalk Jeremiah 50 and 51 up to just coincidence as it relates to Revelation 17 and 18. And again, it is for this reason that we can see much more going on here prophetically. And so we apply this evening. And I only want to apply with one point. It's a point that I've danced around the whole time. But it's time to make it. Investment in Babylon is investment into that, in that which will inevitably come into judgment. Twice within the course of this chapter, as we've mentioned, verse 6 and verse 45, we would find God's call to his people, to the people of God, that they would separate themselves from Babylon. Now, we've spent the last three weeks understanding how those prophecies correspond to the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. Next week, we'll fit the pieces together in a more topical, historical fashion. And yet, what I hope you can already appreciate is that when the Bible speaks of Babylon, it does not just speak of that city. It speaks of the system that's represented going all the way back to Babel. It speaks of the system whereby man hardens his heart against God and says, I will make for myself a name. I will build a tower unto heaven. I will ascend. It's the exact same spirit that we see in Lucifer. I will ascend into the heights. I will be like the Most High. It's a direct representation of all that the world stands for against God the world's system operating in opposition to God, the world's priorities operating in opposition to God, the world's desires operating in opposition to God. Now, as we've said this, we understand this to be the case. God calls us within this chapter to separate ourselves. His people, separate yourselves. Come out from Babylon. And this takes on new meaning when we understand this system when we understand this lineage, when we understand that Jeremiah 50 is not just historical and it's not just prophetic as it relates to 539 BC, it's prophetic as it relates to Mystery Babylon. It's prophetic as it relates to the cord of truth that has connected Babylon as the center of man's rebellion against God from beginning to end. This is not just a call for Judah to not get comfortable in Babylon. In fact, Judah was still in Babylon at the overthrow. Of, of the nation. They would be there well into the Medo Persia. As a matter of fact, many of them were there in the days of, of the New Testament. Peter went and visited Babylon. That can't have been the essence of God's message to Israel here. God wasn't warning Israel here not to live in the region of Babylon. They were in captivity, it's where they lived. What God was doing is God was calling his people to live lives separate from what Babylon represented. And God's people throughout every age and at every time have been called to do the same thing. Come out from among them and be ye separate and touch not the unclean thing. Called to understand that investment into Babylon, investment into the world's system is an investment into that which is temporal and that which inevitably comes into ruin and judgment. Now, we talked about this this morning. We talk about it again this evening. When we say investment in this world, we can talk about that in two different ways. The first way is simply investment into the temporal. And we mentioned this morning, as we mentioned this evening, that it is not inconsistent with being a believer to invest in the temporal things of this world. And what we mean by that is things which are flesh and blood, but not sinful, right? 
things which have no particular profit for eternity while simultaneously not being evil, not being wrong, not being a part of the world system. Material possessions, uh, the, the, the things that we are called to in this life. We mentioned this morning uh, having a family, be, having a, a husband or having a wife, um, uh, being a part of an, uh, the world's economy, having a job, uh, buying a house, owning cars, those sorts of things. Of course, Jesus speaks to this as a, as a rule, as we spoke of this morning, as we've been speaking about all month, in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21. We've said it. We said it this morning. I won't make you quote it again this evening during our message. But that reality, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. This is a warning to God's people about the priorities rooted in the, priorities rooted in the temporal things of this world. The things which rust and corrupt, the things which are here for a little time but can be taken away and will vanish away. Babylon is the deepest essence, though, of the world system. Babylon does not just represent temporal things. Babylon represents rebellion. Babylon represents the dark to God's light. Babylon represents that which is not God. Babylon represents the things which embody the spirit of this world, the spirit of the enemy. The things which, not, and not only will they pass away, but the things which, for which reason the wrath of God comes upon the children of disobedience. So John writes in 1 John chapter 2 to the church and to the believers, Verses 15 through 17, love not the world, neither the things which are, that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passes away in the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. This is the essence of the call that we find unto God's people to flee from the midst of Babylon. And in doing so, to deliver our souls, that we be not cut off in her iniquity. The lust of the flesh, lust which has its origin in that which we feel, satiating the desires of the sin nature. The lust of the eyes, lust which has its origin in that which we see, entertaining the impulses of the sin nature. The pride of life, lust which has its origin in that which we perceive or that which we want, exalting the perceptions of the sin nature. This is the essence of the world system. This is the very foundation of Babylon. Going all the way back to the temptation of Eve in the garden. Hath God said. This has been the driving force of man's ambition to exalt himself against God and to exalt himself above God. And the call unto God's people is to identify this system and to come out from among it lest we be caught up in her, her allures and as we are caught up in her allures we become caught up in her judgment, in her plagues. We're warned about this in every corner of New Testament exhortation. Let's read through several of these scriptures and allow them to testify for themselves. Romans chapter 6, verses 19 through 23. I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as ye have yielded your members' servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now yield your member servants to righteousness unto holiness. With the same zeal that you once served sin, with the same zeal that you once served Babylon, with the same zeal that you once pursued your own path, now serve righteousness unto holiness. For when ye were the servants of sin, ye were free from righteousness. You served sin and you had no bearing in righteousness. Paul asks, what fruit had ye then in those things whereof ye are now ashamed? That's an important question for those that are being allured by Babylon. What fruit have ye, have ye in those things? Now you look back on them and they are your shame. So why have any part of it? The end of those things, he says, is death. That word death being spiritual death, separation, separation from God. The end of those things is separation from fellowship. The end of those things is being severed from the vine. The end of those things is quenching and grieving the Spirit of God. The end of those things is bearing no spiritual fervor, no spiritual life, no spiritual essence because you've severed yourself from the source. 
but now being made free from sin and become servants to God. Everybody serves someone. Ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. What Paul said this morning, fruit in this life and in that which is to come. For the wages of sin is death, Paul warns. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We're called in Romans 6 to live free from sin because we have been made free from sin. If you've been made free from sin, then live free from sin. If you have been, if, the, if, if, if you were sitting in the dungeons of Babylon, not even knowing what you were, what, what, where, where you were, what you were in and what you could have, and you have been set free, those shackles have been broken, don't sit there any longer. Come out from her. And if you don't, well, the end of those things, for a believer or unbeliever, the end of those things where now we are ashamed, it's death. If we seek to share in the philosophies of Babylon, we'll share in the judgments of Babylon because the wages of sin is death. Continuing, 1 Corinthians 3, verses 11 through 17. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. This passage does a great job of reminding us that the idea of sharing the judgment of Babylon is not a threat that we would burn in the fires of the lake of fire. Those who have not believed on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ are condemned already. They have their part in the lake of fire should they not believe on the name of the Lord. But when God says to his people, you are my people, but come out from Babylon lest you share in her plagues, we are seeing a warning here to believers about the nature of what it means to either live for the Lord or as one of the Lord's people to walk in darkness. Those in Christ will be saved yet so as by fire. And if a man's work is burned, he shall suffer loss. The loss of rewards. We saw this come up particularly when we were in our Luke series. And what really bubbled up to the surface as we saw Jesus' warnings about coming back and rewards is that we don't even know what we're missing when we yield those rewards. We, don't even, we, we cannot even comprehend what it is that we are giving up for Babylon. Here it's pictured as wood, hay, and stubble. Suffering of loss. Up the pile of the, the, the essence of what our life has meant for Christ go from being this large pile and then the judgment of God falls upon it and it whittles down to just those gold, silver, and precious stones. I, 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 I don't know that I can properly express as one reads through Jesus' teachings, as one reads through the compulsion of Paul as we thought about in 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27 this morning, just how important those rewards ought to be to us just how much of a drive we ought to have to claim them. And just how much that warning of the loss of rewards, of being caught in the plagues of Babylon, ought to cause us to step away, to flee from her for the sake of our souls. On that day when we witnessed the world system exemplified by Babylon utterly destroyed, how much of our time and our affection is going to be destroyed with it? 1 Corinthians 10, 
verses 1 through 14, and then we'll skip to verse 21. Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all did eat the same spiritual meat, and all did drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with many of them God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things were our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things, as they also lusted. Neither be ye idolaters, as some of them, As it is written, the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication, as some of them committed and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. Neither let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. Neither murmur ye, as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. Now all these things happened unto them for in samples, and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall." There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that ye may be able to bear it. Wherefore, my dearly beloved, flee from idolatry. Skipping to verse 21. Ye cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. Ye cannot be partakers of the Lord's table and the table of devils. Do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? The actions of Israel in the wilderness, as recorded in Exodus and Numbers, forms the basis for a strong warning that Paul gives to believers about the dangers of lusting after evil things, about the dangers of having our hearts so rooted in the things of this world and not seeing the heavenly perspective. The dangers of erecting idols in our heart of the things which define this world, the dangers of committing fornication, uh, uh, as some of them committed, a, a, a unfaithfulness to the Lord, to His design, the dangers of murmuring against authority, the dangers of thinking that we can handle living in Babylon without being affected by Babylon, of thinking that we could stand when others have fallen, of thinking that those things which the world system, as we have read through them already, as the Lord has judged them by, by the, uh, as, as we see them, as, as we have read them already this evening, the, the, the seeking of those things which God says are already judged. May I put it that way? We read Jeremiah 50 and 51. We read of Mystery Babylon in Revelation 17 and 18. And here's what we know. It's not that that system will be judged. It's that that system already has the death penalty. They are already sitting on death row. The system is on death row. And there's real, there's tremendous warnings in the scripture about bringing ourselves into that system. So Paul says in verse 21, you can't drink of the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. You can't be a partaker of the Lord's table and the table of devils. He's speaking to the church here. We know it. Because he's talking about the Lord's table. He's talking about those who meet together around the table of the Lord, around in communion. He says, do you come here and you partake in the Lord and then go out there and partake of the devil? Can you do that without recompense? Can you do that without consequence? Do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? The Lord is jealous over us. And if you bound yourself to the Lord, are you stronger than he? Can you do that? You can't. Not without consequence. And that's what, Bab- that, that's what Jeremiah 15 and 51 is, is about. It's about Babylon on death row. And it's about God's people coming out from her because we know what her end is. 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 18. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? What communion hath the light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath, the believer, has, hath he that believeth with an infidel? 
And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their people, and they shall be my God. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. And I will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. I, I don't want this message to sound like a rebuke, per se. I don't want this message to sound... Yes, God says, come out from among Babylon that ye be not a part of her plagues. But do you see what God says here? Separate yourself and I'll be a father unto you. You will have more in me than anything that Babylon could ever give you. This is the Christian life. The Christian of life is not, I'm touching this thing and lightning is going to fall from heaven and destroy me, right? The Christian life is, not only do I know that this is judged and, and with whatever interaction I have with this system, this system is judged and, and my interaction with that is judged as well. But it's a realization that what Christ offers is so, so much better. It's so much better in every way than what the current of the world could possibly offer you. All of those temporal happinesses and all of those temporal uh, satisfactions that the world says you want, you can find and ten times more in joy and in satisfaction in Christ, in God's system. It's there for us. But you can't have both. Says there's no concord between Christ and Belial. You can't have both because there is no fellowship between light and darkness. You can't have both because the believer has no part with the infidel. You cannot serve God and mammon, Jesus would say. No man can serve two masters. So that means we each have a choice to make. And it shouldn't be a hard choice because on one hand you have Babylon fitted for destruction. And on the other hand you have God saying, I will be a father to you and you will be my sons, saith the Lord Almighty. The Lord Almighty says, I will be a father to you. We sang this evening about Christ as our friend. Eternal life, eternal joy. He's my friend. I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither has come into the heart of man what God hath prepared for them that love him. When we see with eyes of clarity, there, there is no choice. I mean, we have a choice, but it's, it's not a choice. It's, it's obvious. It's clear. If only we'll believe it. If only we'll remember that. See, because there's no temptation taken us, but as, as is common to man. And God is faithful who will not suffer us to be tempted above that which we, were, we are able, but will with the temptation also make a way of escape that we may be able to bear it. Do you believe that? Is that how you're living? One more for sake of time. Talks about this jealousy of the Spirit again. James chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence even of your lust that war, against, that war in your members? Ye lust and have not, ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain, ye fight in war, yet ye have not because ye ask not, ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss that ye may consume it upon your lust. Ye adulterers, adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship of the world is enmity with God. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Do you think that the scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? God is jealous over you. And he has every right to be. He owns you by right. He owns you by purchase, by redemption. And he's jealous. And yet, he says, come unto me and I'll be a father unto you, saith the Lord God Almighty. And you'll be my children. The call of God is a yoke that is very easy and a burden that's very light.
But we can't have it both ways. We can't be both a friend to the system of this world and a friend to the system of God. Because one's going that way and one's going this way. One is light and one is darkness. They that are friends of this world have made themselves by those actions the enemy of God in that thing. And God says, come out from Babylon. Be not partakers with her and deliver your soul that ye be not consumed in her plagues. Because the Spirit of God is jealous. He'll fight for us. He'll purge us. He'll chasten us to keep us from being judged with Babylon. And all of these scriptures call us to the same realization. How are you doing this evening? Babylon is alluring. We spoke last week and then this morning by reference and context to the seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. It is seducing. The spirit of this age is seducing. The flow of this world, of Babylon, is seducing. The false prophets, the wolves in sheep's clothing, are seducing. And yet God takes his light and he shines it on Babylon. And he says, this is what she is. Don't be allured by her trappings. Don't be allured by that name for her, thy fine linen. Don't be allured by her wealth. Don't be allured by her might. Though she might build her tower under the heavens, though her walls might be fortified, God says, she's coming down. And that's the call. And again, it's not a call for us to say, oh, I'm going to miss her. I'm going to miss Babylon. The merchants of this world are going to weep over her because they were made wealthy from her. But when we see with the eyes of faith, when we look at Babylon through God's eyes, what we find is a system that in every way, shape, and form is trying to reproduce what they cannot produce because there's no power in it. And that when we come to the Lord and we allow him to be our contentment and we allow him to be our stay and we allow him to be our hope and we allow him to produce in us his fruit, not only are we avoiding the plagues, have we come out from Babylon's judgments, but that which God has for us here is a hundredfold better than anything Babylon could ever conjure up for us. That which God has provided through Christ, in Christ, in holiness and in rightness as it relates to this world and certainly as it relates to the world to come is everything that Babylon wishes it could have, wishes it could be, but doesn't even know it's missing. So really you're giving up nothing. And you're gaining everything. 